Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Kia ora everyone, it's Stephen Moe speaking, and I'm really glad you could join me for another episode of Seeds Podcast. This week we get to speak with James Stewart, and I've known James quite a while, so it was really fun to dive deeper into his background, his history, and what it is he does today through Jumeli Consulting. We also talk about a report, which he's just put out recently, talking about a proposal for how we can deal with the housing crisis. Make sure to check out the show notes for a link to that and other things that we talked about. If you enjoy this, don't forget that there's lots more episodes in the back catalog, and I continue to be appreciative of all of you who share this with your friends or other people or post about it on social media. I don't really have a marketing budget, so you are my unofficial ambassadors spreading the words about Seeds Podcast. And if you use LinkedIn like I do, why don't you come over and find Seeds Podcast? We're about to hit a thousand followers on there, which is great. And also look me up, Stephen Moe. I'd love to connect with any of you who would like to do so. Now let's get straight into this conversation with James. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome James Stewart, who's the founder of Jamelli Consulting. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for uh, having me, Stephen. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation because sometimes I interview people and I don't actually know them very well. But you, I've known quite a while now. <laughs> like we catch up for lunch, you know, we see each other at different events and we're on a board together. So through that, you know, the last couple of years, we've actually gotten to know each other fairly well. Mm. But what I love about the podcast is I get to interview people and ask them the questions that I've never asked. <laughs> and the opening question is actually quite simple, but I don't know the answer. So tell me about your life when you were, say, four or five years old. Mm-hmm. Where were you living, mm-hmm. and what was it like? Fantastic. Uh, so I am Christchurch born and bred, mm-hmm. um, and so grew up in a fairly traditional white middle-class household. Everything was pleasant and nice and and fine, and we had enough, and um, and, and life was good. And um, and it was, it was a relatively unremarkable childhood and the fact that you know everyone was you know happy and we had great relationships and we had a really good free childhood and we were making go-karts and down at the river and all of that sort of fun stuff and school was great and um and and enjoyed it and and you know life was ticking along you know really really nicely in that sense all through through my teens and high school years things were you know as a solid b student nothing exceptional but um but but getting through as well and 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 seemed to gravitate towards um, commerce and management and finance through uh, through university, uh, sorry through school and um, those sorts of things. I've got a memory of probably what I would have been. I don't know, maybe six or seven sitting outside our, our um, front gate um, selling um, grapes that I'd um, borrowed from the school, uh, one of the fences on the back of the school, gone and taken a bucket load of grapes and <laughs> so was there selling was an them. entrepreneurial streak. Yeah, saw on, an opportunity huh? <laughs> and, um, and, you know, t- um, I think people driving past took pity on the six-year-old boy selling <laughs> selling grapes and, and things like that. So, yeah, really, really pleasant childhood and really enjoyed those sorts of um, avenues, I suppose. Yeah. And um, it, and and you mentioned we did you have siblings or yeah what was your family life like yeah no so I'm the middle child of three um, an older sister who's up in Auckland at the moment and a younger brother who's um, just come back from um, a period of time in the Mediterranean on on working on super yachts and volunteering in refugee camps um, so 
um, no, um, a really neat childhood with with the three of us and um, all the usual tensions and fun um, that sits with within that group. Mm. And so it sounds like you mentioned the river there. It sounds like outdoors was quite a big part of the childhood, was it? Or yeah, we were we were always given a lot of freedom and and you know hooning off on our bikes and playing cricket and rugby and um, we've got a family batch up at Arthur's Pass, so we spent long weekends up there as as a family and mountain walks and things like that. So the outdoors was always part of our life and sport was always part of our life so we learned a lot through through all of those activities which mm. is definitely continuing on today yeah and arthur's pass and the batch like what does that evoke for you the memories of a place where your family would go what what did it mean oh it, it was just the epitome of a simple life um you know you'd um you'd, you'd we'd choose to cook our toast over the open fire um you know the house was you know, you'd have to um, unfreeze the pipes in winter and things like that, and you know, um, and it was just basic. And you know, so this mon- is a true batch. It's not a batch that's actually like <laughs> a proper house. <laughs> no, it's not. It's basic, and you know, the the mice are uh, the mice are the permanent residents, and we we join and, and and things like that. So it's it's a very basic place, but a lot of good memories. I mean, I, I think one of the the key turning points in that batch's history when we were all devastated when Arthur's Pass got cell phone coverage because that was one of the great things about going up to others pass is that there was no cell phone coverage for a time so you could truly disconnect and have a very valid excuse for not getting back to people which was bliss that's awesome it's a term it's a phrase actually like a batch that other countries it, Mm. it doesn't exist yeah and i mean people might say holiday home or something like that but the batch the sense of a batch in new zealand like a true batch you're lucky if and then fill in the blank you know yeah. like there might be a toilet but it might be outside or yeah. you know the electricity is there but it it doesn't work on a tuesday or whatever you know it's yeah. like it's very primitive isn't it it is and and i think it it you know given that they are typically family centric things they they boil you back to what's important mm-hmm. and you've got families you know sitting around the open fire playing you know monopoly or you know guess who or something um into the evenings and waking up early and stoking the fire up and then going for a mountain walk and things like that and collecting firewood and bringing it back you know mm-hmm. it's a very basic life you don't just flick a switch and the gas fire comes on like at home and things like that and you mm-hmm. know you wake up and everything's warm because the heat pump was on for an hour before you know life is very basic and and, yeah. and it's great because it it helps you remember how good we've got it in normal world yeah yeah it's yeah it's funny isn't it like if you go on a camping trip and you're sleeping on a cot for a week you're kind of craving that (laughs) nice bed back at home right (laughs) absolutely it's one of those things when we get back from camping in the in the summer holidays that not having to um walk barefoot to the toilets um Mm. you know early in the morning or late at night is just an absolute luxury when you've got a toilet just down the corridor from your house it's it's the simple things yeah definitely um and in terms of Christchurch being the place that you were from does that mean you had like grandparents and cousins and like was it quite a big family here or had it been you know parents who'd recently immigrated to New Zealand or yeah, yeah no good um yeah that's a really good positioning on on sort of our background because we had yeah both sets of grandparents here right both my mother and father were from big families sort of five or six apiece oh, and right. and three quarters of each of those families would have been around so we've got great family memories of you know Christmas day at my grandparents 
great big house on the you know in, in Rickerton and, and you know on the river and boats and kayaks and a tennis court and kids playing flashlight until um, you know um, spotlight until you know late hours in the evening and, and things like that so yeah big family gatherings and um, yeah lots of good memories yeah that's awesome well it sounds like family was a theme yeah <laughs> right from the beginning yeah so we're coming through into high school um, you mentioned you were kind of having a leaning towards sort of commerce and finance and we we heard about a six-year-old you know <laughs> business venture there um yeah talk us through kind of maybe end of high school like did you know did you want to do further study did you want to go work like what was your thinking at that point yeah no i i definitely gravitated towards um marketing commerce um economics those sorts of disciplines and um at the end of high school and then and so it was just the natural course for me to go to a um, to a BCom um, and, and did that in at Canterbury University and and just had the most fantastic time. Just incredibly enjoyed my time at Canterbury University. A really neat formative time, great ser- um, phase of independence and stepping out from under your parents' wings and all those sorts of things and mm-hmm. whole new set of friends and lifestyle and things like that. So really really enjoyed that time you know yeah. going deeper into those subjects and learning more and more about them yeah and were you tempted to go somewhere else like otago or auckland or something like you stayed stayed here <laughs> yeah it was really interesting because yeah it, it um with with our circle of friends that the natural thing that most of our, our friends did was to go and do a debt gap year overseas mm-hmm. and um and all of our friends applied for a gap year in the uk and things like that and i think i was the only one out of maybe a dozen of our friends that didn't get um a position and i was absolutely devastated because all of my friends were going over there and catching up in the weekends and doing contiki trips and things like that and i was um had envisaged just being left out but um being able to stay in christchurch and um and be in a new environment was incredibly liberating looking back on it because it it forced you out of your comfort zone um it forced you to go and meet new people and to me i was sort of unshackled from who i'd been for the last decade and could say well actually who do i want to be for the next decade Mm. and what's 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 the real james at that time and and be able to sort of live out that life at university so no it was a very very good time that's great yeah it's the it's those turning points in life where you can kind of reinvent yourself isn't it and but i'm I think you're, you know, that's quite young to realize that because I think lots of us just continue on, you know, same habits, same, con- you know, just studying here instead of there. So um, I've found it when I've moved country, it's like a chance to yeah. reinvent who you are because no one knows who you are in the new place. And and if you were shy and or some, you know, something that had always been a difficult thing, it's like, well, actually, no one knows me in this new place. So... You I'm can be change. who you want to be. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, it's, exactly. it is. It's, it's liberating. It's a great experience. Yeah, yeah. And I have an accent, but I actually grew up in Christchurch and went to Canterbury University. Sure. So <laughs> I wasn't meaning like, why didn't you go? Because I had a great experience too, yeah. um, and I think it's a great, um, you know, beautiful campus and good facilities and everything. So yeah, and I think it's probably my Scottish heritage and being a bit tight that I was just thinking, well, there's a great university here, and I can stay at home for first year and things like that. Yeah. I don't need to rock up a huge student loan yeah. um, and things like that. But and, and no regrets in that at all. Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome. So what era are we talking about? When when were you studying? Um, so Canterbury, I was 99 to 2001. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we literally did walk by each other because sure I was there we, yeah. um, 95 to 2000 and well, left in 2001. So Fantastic. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I was over in the law department though, so <laughs> may not have crossed over to the commerce, which at the time was 
separate buildings. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So you getting through through university, um, did you know like was there a specialty within what you were studying that was really, you know, lighting up like this is what I want to do or Yeah, the yeah, the the thing that I was gravitating towards was sort of I guess that um I guess that American dream of, you know, um, having a, you know, a nice white picket fence house and a corner office and a nice suit and a nice car. And, and I really enjoyed uh, the marketing management angle to get there. I really liked um, understanding consumer behavior. So I um, had a minor in psychology and understanding why right. people made purchase decisions and what drove them and things like that. But during that three-year period, my entire bent was, you know, understanding people in order to exploit them, essentially, just to be really <laughs> crass, in order yeah. to, you know, how can we sell them something they probably don't really need, um, but we can make a, you know, a dollar eighty per unit, and that can help me, you know, have my nice white picket fence house. Sure. Um, and I remember there was one one course in there. It was it was international international marketing, a third year course. And I signed up to it probably without reading the book, uh, the, the prospectus, um, right. properly, and thought, oh, this will be studying Coke and Sony and Nike and all these big companies that we can, right. you know, mimic international and, yeah, marketing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's that was, uh, and and we got in there, and um, this amazing professor, uh, Leo Dana, um, and he um, he talked us through the syllabus and we talked about he talked to us about how we would be studying um, a pig farmer in Laos and we would be talking about um, someone who made baskets in Uganda and places like that and how they would market their goods and their services right. and um, how they would get them to market. Like literally, you know, if there was no road or if there was a road that got washed out, how would the pigs get to market? I see. And, um, <laughs> and, and, the, and that was that was his way of distilling it down to um, bring a humanitarian lens in it. Mm. And I was incredibly frustrated at the start going, well, this is not going to help me in my life at all. But it was fantastically eye-opening to go, okay, well, there's actually, you know, two-thirds of the population of this earth that that is their marketing you know they wouldn't even put that term on it but that's how they market that's how they have a sustainable livelihood these are the things that if they can't communicate to people that they've got duck eggs or if they can't get their duck eggs to market without them spoiling or cracking um, they're not going to be able to feed their kids um, or buy a textbook to help them head off to school and things like that so it was a, it was a fantastically refreshing take on on what is marketing wow yeah. that's really interesting isn't it funny how some Sometimes in life, you, like you sign up for a course yeah. and you think it's going to be one thing and then it like opens a different way of thinking that, you know, maybe wasn't there before. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'm sure that Leo Dana, the, the professor, would just have this wry smile on his face, you know, just, you know, all these bright eyed, you know, um, junior capitalists turning up to, right. you know, to expand <laughs> their empire and, um, and seeing their disappointment, but then also seeing their eyes open to, um, their privilege, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And had you, um, I'm not sure how to phrase this question, but had, had poverty or that, that sort of, that world been open to you? Because let's be honest, Christchurch is a pretty easy place to live if, if you're from a middle-class background. It's not like poverty would necessarily confront you in your face Although it is there, the last person I interviewed was a city missioner, Matthew Mark. So we had a great chat about homelessness and poverty cycles and things. But you get my point. It's Absolutely. like if you're growing up in, uh, you know, going to school and it, like it's not something or, or was it? Had, had you come across it before? No, not at all. No, we, we had a 
privileged middle class upbringing. We you know grew up in St Albans, and um, and it was pleasant and it was nice. And the only time you saw poverty was a World Vision ad with a with a African kid with flies on his face asking for a dollar a day. Um, and and as crass as that sounds, that was my middle class privileged exposure to poverty. And I just presumed that because there were people richer than us who went to Bali for their holidays and their parents drove Range Rovers, that we were middle class globally. And I hadn't made the mm. leap that actually, well, we're in the top 3% and you might be in the middle of that top 3% globally. Right. Um, but I just saw myself as middle class. That relativity um, wasn't there in a, in a true sense for me. So Yeah. Oh, interesting. So was that kind of a, yeah, what happened next? Because that sounds like quite an eye-opening course to be taking and, and given the background that you'd had it up to that point, mm. and what am I going to do with my life? <laughs> yeah. Those big young people type questions. Yeah. yeah. What, what did it do for you? Did it stir some things up? It, it definitely did. It planted seeds, I think. Um, excuse the pun with the yeah, podcast. No, I love no. that pun. <laughs> um, you can pl- use that pun anytime you want. <laughs> uh, it planted seeds that probably started to sprout um, at the end of that year. So okay. finished third year uni. Um, had obviously gone straight through from high school, so I thought, I, I just need a, a, a bit of a break. Headed off to Sydney um, and just thought, oh, I'm just going to take six months off, go and work in hospo, enjoy the nightlife, and just have you know a great lifestyle over there with yeah. a bunch of mates. And, um, and it was a fantastic season over there, but I remember meeting someone over there who shone that light on just that point that we were talking about before, that you know just because you're middle class in Christchurch, that's the middle of the top 3% globally. Sure, yeah, and so yeah. actually, and what she shone a light on for me was, what are you going to do with that privilege? Because I'd shared with them about, you know, wanting to, you know, go back and get a marketing job and work my way up and get a white picket fence and a nice car and all that sort of stuff. And what they sort of shone a light on was going, well, you know, from a roll of the dice, you were born in St. George's Hospital in Christchurch as opposed to in a field in Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. I did nothing to um, to dictate that I was born in Christchurch versus Zimbabwe, um, but through the roll of the dice, here I am, and nothing I did generated that. So what am I going to do with that privilege that I was born with was mm-hmm. sort of the challenge that they put in front. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and they awfully flipped it around and said, if you met yourself in a, from a, that was born in the field in Zimbabwe, what would you implore you do with that privilege that you have Mm. Um, what would be your cry to someone who you'd meet who had all this opportunity and that just that's that poured fertilizer on those seeds and just knocked me for a six and it and it just completely flipped everything around Mm. and and it was great you know going back to your point around turning points it was great because I'd finished my university three years of study learned a lot got a bit of paper saying that I could learn stuff for three years and then I was going right I'm at a crossroads what am I going to do now? And um, and it was fantastic just to have that light bulb. You know, it was like you're in a in a in a dimly lit room and someone just shone a high powered torch into a corner that had always been there, but that you'd never really seen before. So yeah, mm. fantastic turning point. That's great. I, I love that story, and I love the the way that they framed it for you as well. Like I haven't heard it phrased that way. Like imagine if you were the one who'd been born in this place and then you're talking back to yourself what yeah. what would you say yeah those people like you said they said this like who were they <laughs> what did what did shape them to be challenging a young person like oh. you to to do that do you remember did you know them well or was it kind oh, of semi well they, they were co-workers in, in the hospital that i was working with and i think they were just 
far more enlightened about their privilege. You know, they were from pretty wealthy families, and um, but I guess they had the, someone had shone a torch in, in their dimly lit room earlier, mm-hmm. and um, and they'd, they'd joined the dots and, and recognised that they were privileged, and they could either you know ignore the other ninety seven percent of the world and just look after them and have a great eighty years on the planet and live comfortably and have beautiful holidays and pay off the mortgage by the time they're fifty and you know life's great. Mm-hmm. Um, or they could, you know, recognize that actually, different. Yeah, yeah, there's an opportunity to help. Yeah. Do you know what happened to them? Have you stayed in touch? Yeah, and no, I see them on LinkedIn every now and then, and, and they're still working in the field of um, ethical fashion, um, oh. which is just a fantastic, you know, working in the system, but yeah. changing the system from within. That's awesome. Well, when this comes out, we'll put it on LinkedIn. And oh. Why don't tag them in? Oh, absolutely <laughs> will. Listen yeah. to this yeah. minute. And, no, but I think it's important to do this because too often we let moments like that slip by and we don't acknowledge or recognize the role that each of us can play in another's life and i just wonder you know if you didn't have those conversations if you hadn't had the light Mm -hmm. shown like we haven't talked about what happened next but Mm. i get the sense of what happened next so if that if those people hadn't taken the time to have that conversation Mm. then you know i might just be sitting here talking to (laughs) the the Fill in the blank, you know. Like, sure, yeah. So I think it's yeah. good to acknowledge those the role that those people play, and then ask the question, looking in the mirror, like, how can I play that role for someone else? Fantastic. What is it that you know? Because all of us, I would think, we've all got nephews, nieces. Like, there's people in our own family. Mm-hmm. To what extent can we play a role in in their journey, in their life, and maybe help ask some hard questions that it's really awkward if it's their parents. But yeah. if it's their uncle or their aunt, like maybe you can have that chat. So, yeah, I think it's just good to recognize, I guess. Yeah, and, and I think it's it's those fleeting periods in life. I mean, because this this interaction with this person was probably ten or twelve weeks, mm. and you know they germinated a seed that you know has you know I, I look back that as, as a pivotal time when when the lights got switched on and and I made a call to you know go right instead of left or take the red pill not the blue pill you know yeah say, yeah um, yeah. So what was their name? Can I ask? Yeah, no, Jana, Jana Quaintance. Um, we're in Sydney together, yeah. and um, I've got no idea where in the world she is now. But, yeah. um, That's but, awesome. Yeah. Well, shout out to her. <laughs> That's great. So you're getting to your time, the end of that time, mm. that season. Um, when you got on the plane to come back, I presume you came yeah. back here. Like, did you did you know in your heart, like, actually something's shifted here. Yeah. I, I need to do a different thing than maybe what I'd been planning? Or Yeah, no, I... Um, I, my eyes had been opened and, and I was just incredibly hungry to learn more around poverty and development, the alleviation of poverty. And so enrolled in, enrolled in um, Massey's um, um, International Development um, Programme. Okay. Did that part time, and I was doing um, ministry. But you training. read the prospectus this time. I did right? read the prospectus. Yeah, <laughs> it, it said was, international, but <laughs> yeah, it was it was actually what I was looking for. Um, so I did that part time, and um, and was also part time at um, ministry training college, a Bible college as well. So sort of coupling two bits of my life together oh. on a on a faith piece, but then also a, a physical, tangible works piece on how right. I could act that out as well. So. Um, that was, I think it was probably two or three years of doing both of those together and um, and learning why we have poverty, what have been the major trends, colonization, globalization, you mm. know, the, um, you know how neoliberalism was meant to be phenomenal and maybe hasn't. Um, and so looking at all of those different trends and what's been happening um, across the last, you know, I mean, 
thousands of years, but you know, focusing on the last hundred mm. um, and sort of post World War Two in particular. So it's been re- that was a really interesting time to be able to treat myself and go deep into into understanding why we are where we are, and mm. then obviously what are the building blocks to get out of poverty? What are the trends around sustainable development and livelihoods and and all those sort of buzzwords um, that yeah. you know sort of float it's, around? It's great that you were able to choose to do that at that point as well, because it's kind of like pre-children, pre-mortgages, pre-like yeah. all the responsibilities <laughs> that come possibly yeah. a bit later on, right? It's, yeah. Um, yeah. So what what was it exactly then? Was it like a master's course? Yeah, it was a was master, it? master's of international development. Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and studied extramurally from um, out, out of Palmerston North. But through that, we had this cohort of Otatahi-based um, students and most of them were probably in their 40s, 50s, um, and adding that on as they'd probably started working in the sector and learning okay. more about it. And I was this wide-eyed 21-year-old um, at the time. And um, and it was just fantastic learning off those people. And um, one of them, um, Richard McGeorge, it was um, where I'd met him, and um, he was running a consultancy um, that did... Um, Financial um, feasibilities and, um, and and modeling and forecasting for um, infrastructure, so infrastructure finance advisory, um, and he was doing that work in East Coast of Africa, through Europe, Southeast Asia, through the Pacific, and so hmm. I started working for him um, part time in the holidays and then full time, and and ended up working you know full time for him, and and yeah had a, a good ten years really working with um with Ridgeway, um, his company, doing work all over the world after that. So it was quite neat how I an opportunity. Um, go left moment um, turned into choosing a course that this other person happened to be on and um, and then that was the, the next wow. decade of my life. So you met him on the course, he yeah, was doing it as well. we were well. both studying it and I think we yeah. met at Java Cafe on Manchester Street in Christchurch one night so right. yeah, it was a fantastic um, yeah, sliding doors moment where you met yeah. someone that you know really shaped the next phase of your life. That's cool. Tell me about him. What had shaped him or why, why was he into that? Do you know? Yeah, he'd um, he'd had a um, uh, a banking background, um, and some of those banking posts in Europe, probably in the nineties um, and two thousands, had had placed him into you know some of the um, uh, former Soviet countries that were you know going through a you know um, economic rebirth and, and things like that, and obviously the banking world was a big part in underpinning that, and so he was involved in, in deals and transactions and um, restructuring over there, and. That my understanding of that for him was that that was an experience that opened his eyes to you know the poverty that sits over there, um, and then led to how infrastructure can actually be a catalyst or a, a, an, an enabler to help um, people and communities and countries um, mm. step out of poverty, and um, that really transpired to him getting involved in you know um, projects for the world bank and the asian development bank and the undp um you know looking at you know hydro projects and roading and, and water and sanitation and electricity and things like that and um and and doing the you know the, the shadow modeling and the forecasting and the, and the lending assurance for for the for the banks at the time over that piece mm-hmm. there so i was lucky enough to spend um you know time under his wing great to learn from yeah, yeah. and yeah he'd had that light bulb moment um obviously throughout his life and um and it's seen that that's a an area of need globally 
Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, one of the podcast people that I just interviewed a couple of weeks ago actually was Sid Salakar, and he's from India. And he was telling me about the um, so he basically grew up in the eighties, nineties, similar age to us, basically. But he saw firsthand as a young wow. person the difference that the um, the investment in infrastructure was making, yeah. and it's things that we we in the in the West might take for granted, you yeah. know, like. A road <laughs> so that yeah. this trail becomes a road or you know new um you know rail links or whatever yeah. or ports and he said he saw um the transformation that the infrastructure can have on the um the the wealth of the people yeah. who then have access in different new ways and it's just sometimes we we live in moments in time and you kind of forget that oh. what we have here is not the same as in other places. So. Oh, it's not. No, I remember we were in Palau, which is just a little speck um, in the Pacific Ocean just below Japan mm-hmm. and off the coast of the Philippines, and we were doing a tariff study um, on their electricity sector for them. Um, and, and typical of, of a lot of developing countries, um, the, the electricity um, both the generation, transmission and distribution is all owned by the government. A lot of it was diesel powered um, um, at that time and the price of diesel when I was working over there quadrupled over sort of a period of three or five years mm. and that had created massive issues um, in the sense that, you know, because it was owned by the government, the government was incredibly reluctant to put up the tariffs because that would lose them votes um, but because there was less money coming in through the bills and the costs were going up, um, they could invest less in maintenance, so there were outages frequently. Right. And we were brought in as the, the big bad consultants to bear the bad news, essentially, yeah, that actually the tariffs need to go up, but what's an appropriate lifeline tariff and what should the business communities pay and those sorts of things. And I remember we were in a, in a town hall meeting, essentially, you know, wheeled out to break the bad news and engage with the community around that. And um, everyone was you know, saying that these tariffs can't go up, it's going to cripple people and businesses and things. And I can still picture it. There's one lady there who was a, owned a bakery, and she said, more important to me than the price of electricity is the reliability of electricity. Because each night she would take maybe $50 worth of materials, knead, them, knead the dough together, put it into an oven, and if the oven switched off halfway through the baking cycle, the bread had to be thrown out. It was useless. And then the shop didn't open the next day, and her three retail staff weren't employed, and mm. then their kids didn't you know have money for food and things like that so she was her perspective was that actually the reliability helped her run a business helped her generate revenue to feed her kids help employ other people help give people food and things like that so that to me was just such a a light bulb moment on you know reliability versus price you know quality Mm. versus price but also on you know the fact that you know we walked into this um, room that we're in now and we turned the light on and there was no question in our minds that the when we hit the light switch, the lights would come on. Mm. Same thing when we work in the mornings, and so it's that is that position of privilege, and that that just like you said, we take infrastructure for granted, mm. and probably that's something that the Christchurch earthquakes has taught a lot of people is that actually, for maybe once in our lives, for a few years, we couldn't take that infrastructure for granted because the roads were really horrible and awful, and for a period afterwards, the the lights wouldn't come on and power was cut off and things like that. So it's um. You know, really tough situations to be in, but that's how you know a huge portion of the world's population still live. That's, yeah. that's their norm, not their exception. Yeah, talk me through that because I'm really fascinated in people's perspectives and journeys, as you can tell. Mm. And like, 
we've heard you've grown up in Christchurch in a privileged position. Yeah. You've gone to university. You've had this light bulb moment. But now it sounds like you're actually on the ground. Like you're going to Africa, right? You're going to South Pacific Island nations. Yeah. What was it like to shift from the theoretical study mm. of international development yeah. to, oh, I'm, I've now arrived in fill in the blank, you know, Port yeah. Moresby, and there is a person selling bananas on the side of the road, and that's their job, yeah. they, that's their security. Yeah, um, yeah what, what, what was that transition like, or how did it, how did it, how did you feel, I guess? I, beautifully confronting um, is probably the only way to really describe it in the sense that it is unsettling when mm. you see, you know, um, you know, a different type of beggar, you know, um, at the streetlights, you know, than what we see in, in, in you know, homeless people in, in Christchurch, for example, um, knowing that there is no social welfare for, for those people in Maputo or, you know, Dar es Salaam and things like that. That is another degree of poverty, not taking anything away from Christchurch or New Zealand's poverty, but, you know, it's a different degree of poverty. Mm-hmm. And and it, it turns the lights on, um, you know, when you see how those at the very bottom, you know, exist. But then also, yeah, you see that the banana vendor, and you know, um, if you know um, his truck breaks down and his bananas rot, you know, he's had to buy those and he's not getting any revenue. And what's that going to do? Um, all of those sorts of people. And in in one sense, it was it was very easy to jump in your on your business class flight to Dar es Salaam and go to your get picked up at the airport in a chauffeur driven car and taken to your five star hotel and then go to the office and do your work uh, but for me the opportunity there was to engage in a life that was completely different and so you know the simple thing of just taking my running shoes and and just going for a run each morning and just saying hi to people and um, engaging with the people at the office um, at the electricity company and you know, we some of the best memories are when you know you form friendships with them, and they invited you round to their house for dinner and things like that, and you got to see how they lived. And these are middle class people in Dar es Salaam, and um, it was just amazing to see their happy functioning families in a very different environment to what a happy functioning family does in Christchurch. Mm-hmm. And um, it turns the lights on, and it shows you what is actually important. And um, and it, the thing that I loved every time I came back from a trip was that you just don't take your luxuries for granted your privilege for granted so it was it was healthy for me um, because I think it's in this white middle class privileged world that I live in it's incredibly easy to forget about the other 97 percent especially with our borders being shut and we can't travel and get out Um, it's incredibly easy to do that so um, finding opportunities in our own back garden to um, to stay grounded and realize that you are privileged and to let that guide your responses is something personally or for me and my wife as well mm. it's very important to us to s- try and stay grounded in that sense because it can corrupt our actions if we don't mm. and can i ask you a question about international development mm. and some of the work that you were doing like it it's really interests me the and I'm, I'm curious the role that you were playing so maybe this is the first question sure. is like were you coming in to look at a project and go well this is the feasibility of it i think it's going to work or not and was that for like um you know world bank type people or un or mm-hmm. the the country itself um yeah what was the role that you were playing yeah i mean it, the, the work was varied but probably um a typical role for us would be if there was a 
hydro pro project in Dar es Salaam or, or Mozambique that was proposed to go ahead and they'd done all the engineering studies and all the technical work had been done and um, and it was going to be funded by a um, by a, a, a multinational corporation. They were going to say, "Hey, we'll come in and build um, this hydro dam. Um, we will, you know, it'll generate electricity, which you can, um, which we can export down to South Africa. Um, and it will create all these jobs. It'll create all these export earnings. It'll create all this tax benefit coming back." Um, but they would be saying to the World Bank, "But in order to do those things, we need a concessionary loan." So we need a loan at 2% mm. in order to unlock all these benefits. And, and that's what the bank does. It, right. it provides concessionary loans to unlock economic benefits to generate social returns. Um, and we, our job in that sense there would be to essentially shadow model what they were projecting in order to give the bank assurance that these guys weren't going to make super profits with a 2% loan. So we want them to make a fair return on capital so they can take the risk and do the work. But... Um, essentially every dollar that they get in subsidy, calling a spade a spade, from the World Bank is a dollar that can't go to another project into the hands of those that need it. So mm. that, that was really rewarding work because we were using our technical skills um, in order to... Um, in order to figure out whether um, you know these projects should go ahead with the with the tax regime that was set up, mm. and the other the other major stream of work that we did was really around tariff setting and things like that, and that was balancing. You need a sustainable electricity network that's got enough money for maintenance, but every dollar that you take from the people is a dollar that the people don't have. So trying to find that sweet spot and, mm. and setting tariffs fairly and equitably um, was a great um, challenge. Yeah. Well, that's really helpful to understand. So it's kind of the bigger end of things in the sense of it's a big project, you yeah. know, like it's a, yeah. it's a dam or, you know, it's a, it's a electricity thing. And yeah, because yeah. the, the bit that really interests me, and I'm sure you have an observation about it, so um, I can still ask the question, but sometimes it feels feels like the um, the Western powers that be go into a country that is in need and and they identify a need based on their understanding and the example that is probably easy to give is you go in and you know there's a village in Africa and you look at the children going to school in the village in Africa and none of them have shoes mm -hmm. and you think we've got to get shoes for these children so that they can have a safe and good time at school yeah. and 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 from a western perspective like I can understand that like I want my kids to have you know sure. <laughs> they should have shoes when they go to school here in Christchurch New Zealand yeah. but it's missing the point sometimes if there's no paper in the school, you yep. know, or there is no books for the children to sure. learn from. And it's like putting things in the wrong order. Yep. And actually what we need to do is listen to the real needs rather yeah. than the perceived needs that we bring with our own context. Yeah, in a really well-intentioned context. Exactly, um, yeah. One of my favorite, it's a sort of a reasonably well-known analogy as a story. I think it's a, I'm pretty sure it's true. Let's call it true. Um, but there was a um, there was a, a, a wealthy American guy who was traveling around Central, um, Central Africa and was staying in this village and saw that every morning at 4.35 o'clock the, the, the women at the village would get up and they would walk 5Ks with, with their water pots and they would walk to their freshwater source fill up the pots and they would bring them back in order, in order to you know give the kids water and, and cooking and um, all those sorts of things mm -hmm. and, um, and so 
he saw that and just thought this is so inefficient. He bought his Western, you know, um, you know, Ford production line lens to it and just said, this is incredibly inefficient. You've got 12 women walking off doing this thing. Um, and the next time he came back, he basically um, bought a pump and um, and a great big um, long metal tube and um, and put a put a pipe from the river and put a put a pump in the middle of the village and showed them how to pump the pump and the fresh water came up and everyone clapped and thought that was great and he felt fantastic. And he came back six or nine months later on and the pump was sitting there in the middle of the village but there was no pipe. And um, and he was looking around going, well, where's the pipe gone? <laughs> yeah. And all the women had these beautiful um, bracelets on their <clears throat> wrist which was slithers of the pipe that had been cut up. And he was... <laughs> flabbergasted and going what's going on and he finally talked to them and said what's happened why did you do that and and what he was told by I presume the chief or someone said what you didn't realize was that two hours each morning that the, that the woman was spending walking to and from that was their only time out away from kids away from husbands away from working in the fields where they could go and socialize and natter and gossip and, and have fellowship during that time and that was actually something really special to them. They preferred that compared to a pump. And it was it's exactly your point. It's that thing of bringing an external lens to solve a problem without actually engaging with people and figuring out what the problem was. Um, mm. and, and international development is rife with you know examples of really well-intentioned people that want to um, do good and see a solution to a problem that they perceive without actually, I guess the flip side of that is to, to turn things on its head and to go with a servant mindset and say, how can we serve? Mm. What are your needs? Let's form a relationship. Let's get to know you. And we might not do anything on the ground for two or three years, but you get to know me, we get to know you. Let's build a relationship. How can our different strengths complement each other? Yeah. Um, yeah, very different mindset, a lot slower, but it's, it's all about the people first. Yeah, that's really good. And it's kind of that, that picture of we have one mouth and two ears for a reason, right? <laughs> but how often do we go into situations like, oh, I can tell you, I can see your problem here and yeah. I know how to fix it rather yeah. than actually just going a bit slower, listening and, and really getting to the heart of it. Yeah. So that, that sounds like a really amazing role in the sense of you're, you know, that's a worldwide role. You're, you're, you're looking over here, you're helping a Pacific Island here, like, Tell us about what happened next and the transition to what you're doing today, because I'm really curious about Jamali and like, how did that start, you know, cool. and, and, and what's the ethos behind it? Because it's a, it's a company and what you're setting up here is something I really respect and I want oh. to understand that story too. Nice. Um, so, so the international development work was fantastic, but the reality was that I was traveling 40% of the time. And then when it was just my wife and I, um, as a young married couple with no kids, that was manageable. Um, when in, what are we, 12 years ago, um, so 2010, um, twin boys came along and that changed everything. And um, for the Not better. one, but two. <laughs> <laughs> Straight in the deep end. Wow. Um, and, and, it became very clear um, after I'd done my first trip overseas um, when they were born that this just wasn't sustainable mm. is that, you know, a line need to be drawn in the sand. And um, I ended up taking a role with um, PwC up in Auckland doing exactly the same work but for Kiwi um, companies, Genesis and Mighty River and doing tariff studies for them and feasibility okay. studies. So it was the same skill set but in, a, in the same sector but with a different driver. And... I can still remember to this day driving across the Harbour Bridge in Auckland with my wife and she just said, you're different. I said, well, what do you mean? 
And she said, you just haven't got the same sparkle as, as you used to when you were doing international work. And I said, well, let's unpack that because that's a really <laughs> good observation. I want to know more. Yeah, because <laughs> um, like Frog and a Beaker, I hadn't really picked it. Right. And, and, and what we unpacked with her infinite wisdom was um, doing the same work in the same sectors but without the purpose. Mm. The purpose was the thing that I was there for. It was about the why, not about the how or the what. So the what and the how were the same, but the why wasn't there. And um, and that was just a really interesting revelation because I was on, you know, doing really well at PwC and on the partnership pathway and, you know, I was gravitating back to that corner office mentality right, yeah, without yeah. really knowing it. And, um, and, and that was a really neat stop and pause observation moment. Um, so and, what year was that? Is that uh, that was around the time just after the Christchurch earthquakes? Okay, um, because um, in about January that year, Richard McGeorge, who had mentioned before, um, gave me a phone call, and he'd been appointed head of infrastructure for the government's recovery authority down here. Okay, and helping out with the rebuild, and and he said, um, "We're growing the team. We need someone with your skill set. Do you want to move back down?" And I was umming and ahhing, and, and the thing that got me over the line was he said, well, I know you love developing country work, and it's almost like Christchurch is a de- developing country. Um, <laughs> you've got a, um, a, a, a country, Christchurch, in need, um, and it needs human capital and financial capital to help it rebuild, as, uh, amongst others. And you've had the central government come into a place that it normally doesn't operate in on a local government context like a development bank would in order to provide financial capital and human capital and um and i said you bastard you've got me and um and so um a, a month or so later on um, we'd, we'd moved down to christchurch and um initially for a short period of time but here we are you know 10 years later 11 years wow. later and so that, that began four and a half years with Sarah, the recovery authority, um, working in the infrastructure finance team. Um, and, um, and that was incredibly rewarding. Um, the, um, the, the MCDEM guide, the, uh, sorry, the Ministry for Civil Defence and Emergency Management guide, which dictates how the government should respond in these sorts of natural disasters, had a page and a half on financing. Um, and it was really written for a $5 million landslip in the wire wrapper where a bridge gets taken out and, and the government should chip in 60% for that bridge. Right. Um, but it didn't address a $3.8 billion, you know, roading. It's and a different scale, water. isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> so we had a, a, a massive alliance with, with um, called Skirt with the council and five construction companies and, and then another um, program of works with the council, $3.8 billion. And, and we had a blank piece of paper on on essentially what we should fund, what standard we should fund, how we treat depreciated assets from a financing perspective. So uh, an incredibly empowering time. I think the the infrastructure rebuild and and the work that Skirt did um, is incredibly um, well respected and successful. and, and it was a privilege to be able to play a very small part in, mm. in, in that. And just to set the scene for people who have heard of the earthquakes but are overseas, like the damage that was done, right? Like oh. it, it was phenomenal. And so it really was having to start over in, in lots of it and rebuild. You know, it's not a case of just, let's just put some asphalt over the crack no. here. You actually had to rip everything up and lay down new pipes or new whatevers. Yeah. And... Um, and that's why <laughs> that's quite a lot, isn't it? Three point eight billion. <laughs> yeah, it's a um, big number. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's it, it's it's one of those tricky things because you're you're 
your pipes are under the road mm. and um you know in my house you know we, we flush the loo and it goes somewhere and we don't know yeah. where it goes and we don't need to know because yeah. it just goes away <laughs> um when the earthquakes hit it, it didn't go somewhere and it bubbled up under the rhododendrons and things like that so mm. um you know all of those complications you know it, it was a it was a it was a big effort and it bought what was under the roads into people's consciousness yeah. and then again taking those things for granted that infrastructure and, and i think that yeah infrastructure is an amazing thing because you, you're right you, you don't really think about it but even a basic thing like okay we're going to build pipes that are this big and i'm yeah. holding up my hands you know in a circle <laughs> shape or we're going to get pipes that are this big yeah and if they're this big that means that the number of people on the street that we can accommodate is this number yep. but if we go a bit bigger then there could be this number and you know like it's the, all of these it's an it's incredibly complicated is the mm. point i'm making is like it's not just a case we'll just put a pipe in there it's like the pipe that you choose is going to limit or allow growth in the future exactly right, right. And, and and all going well those pipes that have been laid shouldn't be touched for 80 or 100 years mm. so from a council planning perspective they're saying what's the demand on that pipe and that includes everything upstream so the subdivision you know there's now a farmland that's yeah. going to need to connect to that in 60 years how do we make sure that there's enough capacity then who should pay for that cost you know is it a central government cost is it a local government cost all of these mm. great questions that no one had really pondered at a billion dollar scale yeah we're sitting there and, and you're right that infrastructure is just one of those things that sits in the background yeah um it's sort of the analogy I like is it's like a drummer in a band. You know, very rarely, you know, um, do you actually notice what the drummer's doing unless the drummer makes a mistake and then everyone knows what's mm. going wrong. Or the wicketkeeper in a cricket game. Sure. The wicketkeeper just does his thing and doesn't get much glory, but when they do something wrong, that's when you notice the wicketkeeper. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, that's what... I mean, I love infrastructure because it's just an enabler and it's not filled with glory and credit. It just gets on, does the job. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So um, as of now, um, talk us through, like, what you're doing today and how you started that journey because yeah. um, what, what year did that start and... Yeah. Yeah. So the Jamelli piece started. So I did four and a half years with Sarah. Had an eighteen-month period helping getting um, Christchurch's urban development agency up and running, mm-hmm. and then that finished at the end of twenty eighteen, twenty seventeen, and um, and that had been a you know the earthquakes were a pretty intense time personally, professionally for everyone. You know, um, you know we're sort of running at a, a, mar- a sprint pace for a marathon distance. It felt mm-hmm. like sometimes so. A lot of people were quite drained. I, I just started to take a few months off at the end of 2017 and um, finished up with the Urban Development Agency. And at that time, I didn't have any plans, just wanted to take some time out. And after I'd finished up my job um, and sent off my I'm finishing off, finishing up email, there was just this sort of flurry of emails coming in saying, oh, would you mind helping us out for a few weeks before Christmas on the consulting job? Or um, we're going to put our hat in the ring for this um, this project in the new year. Do you want to be on the bid team? And and just this work started to bubble, and it was all around commercial viability and feasibility studies, but it all had a social and an environmental bent to it. Mm-hmm. And I can still remember sitting on the beach up at Kaiteri that summer, and, and you know what it meant to be a sort of relaxing month before Christmas was sort of two-thirds consumed with work, and it was like a little buzz business was just starting to form. And, and it was quite neat because it wasn't what I wanted to do. It was what the market saw value in me mm. and so it was quite nice just to respond to that and and, and go where the, the river took me 
Yeah. And um, so me and my wife just decided to let's just give this three months. Let's just treat it like a real business and try and grow it for, you know, for, we'll try and make it work. And at the end of that three months, we had a junior analyst working for us. And then not long after that, another project manager came on board to run some of these projects. And we've got a team of five or six of us now um, that are doing feasibilities and business case studies, so commercial and financial advice. Um, and, and now we're exclusively working for social enterprises, not-for-profits, faith-based organisations. So these groups that are trying to unlock economic, social or an environmental return. So it's local councils, regional councils, as they do economic development and environmental um, projects and things like that. So it's 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 those groups that, you know, really... Um, have impact at the core. You know, it's it's not just working for a a great company that's trying to make a bunch of money for its shareholders and do some really good stuff um, with the products it's producing. There's lots of other good consulting companies that can look after those more traditional businesses. Mm-hmm. But working in the impact space is is our co-papa. It's our DNA and it's it's aligned to our value set. It's what what's us, gets us out of bed in the morning and and we really love it. So we get to work with amazing clients that are at the coalface that are doing work in social housing or affordable housing and um, a range of other projects around economic development and um, environmental impact funds, setting those up and things like that. So a really wide variety of work um, in the health profession and education and things like that. But it's um, it's all very meaningful work. Yeah. And this is something where, like, let's say you're dealing with a not-for-profit or a charity or something. Traditionally, their cup-up or their purpose probably wasn't thinking about we could do some social housing we could sure. do some development so i imagine that there is kind of a, a gap in the knowledge sometimes in organizations that you're supporting mm. would that be right and um i'm just thinking because you can't be excellent at everything instantly <laughs> and in this case the type of client that you're choosing traditionally probably wouldn't have had consultants that come yeah. in and support. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. So some some clients we do, there's a bit of hand-holding and, and, and that's great. Some of them might have a, you know, a, a financial professional or a lawyer on their board who can start guiding them things through. Some of them are bigger organisations like New Zealand Housing Foundation that are just full of phenomenally talented professionals that understand this stuff day in, day out. Mm -hmm. They just need some extra capacity and some blue sky thinking to come in. So um, it's a it's a real horses for courses um, approach there and um, and and that's great because it helps us back to your two ears one mouth um, um, analogy there we've we've got to go on and listen and understand what they're trying to achieve but also where they're coming from because it dictates the language that we can talk to them in and and the sort of the depth of um, financial information we can give them we've got to communicate in such a way that they can you know take it on board um as best as possible yeah and the name gemelli what does it stand for where does it come from so um it's an italian word for twins so the same same root word as gemini um, okay. yeah. yeah and so when i was setting up gemelli um it was a shelf company um back in sort of pre-earthquake times um sort of i used it just to engage um on a couple of contracts um overseas and um and i was needed to set up a company I was sitting at the company's office website page registering a company I was going well, James Stewart Consulting's a bit boring <laughs> and I just had well my wife had just had more accurately we had just had um, twin boys and I was thinking oh there's got to be something cool but twins consulting's a bit lame so just jumped on Google Translate and um, Jamali popped up with as a as another um, translation of twins yeah. and I thought alright that works but then yeah. on top of that someone pointed out seven eight years down the track 
um, this other lens of saying, well, actually, you're looking at unlocking twin objectives because everything you do has to be financially and commercially viable as one objective, but the main objective is unlocking the social or the environmental, the economic. So mm-hmm. I quite like that twin lens that we bring to things. We're mm-hmm. unlocking impact, but we're also doing it in a financially sustainable way. Because if it's not, it's never going to get funded and never get off the ground. Yeah, I like that. I like stories. I think names are important, stories are important. And if you can have that extra richness to a, st- you yeah. know, a name, then yeah, that's great. And we've worked together. So people who are listening may know me as like the voice of this podcast, right? <laughs> um, but uh, I actually work as a lawyer helping people with structures and all that type of thing. So we've worked on different projects together. We sit on a board together. So we've known each other quite well. Um, the, the bit that I'm curious about is Jameli itself and the fact that it itself is what you might call a social enterprise or an impact company. Mm-hmm. Can you just describe a little bit about what that means to you and, and yeah, how does that outwork in practice? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, lo- long, short, Jamali is a social enterprise. We donate 100% of our profit to, um, to two causes. Um, so Kids Can um, and, um, and a, a local school um, that, that feeds and clothes um, kids that wouldn't have been fed or clothed otherwise. So they do incredible work and we're just the, the people shoveling coal in the in the back of the engine to help them, you know, get things underway. Um, help them enable the amazing work that they do. And then the also the other one is Habitat for Happy Humanity New Zealand. So um, helping build um, houses both here and um uh, Nepal has been the primary sort of location that we've focused on. Mm-hmm. You can build a house for three and a half, four grand over there, um, which is the cost of a set of outdoor furniture. So it's a it's a bizarre contrast to make. So when when we set up Jamali um, this time round, um, Robin and I have always sort of adhered to um, a guy called Phil Pringle um, developed this concept called the principle of more than enough. And I guess it comes back from that piece of um, wealth. <sighs> Wealth is something that can really corrupt me personally and, and of humanity in that sense there in terms of it's never enough, it's never enough. And if you're constantly deciding what is enough wealth for you, you know, how big a house do you need, how many overseas holidays, how new a car, how new a clothes, how big's your wardrobe. If you're doing that on a um, on just an ongoing basis, you're always trying to keep up with the Joneses. You, you, your mate's got the new Range Rover, so you want the new Range Rover. Um, so if you're doing it on a proactive, ba- on, a, on a on a reactive basis, sorry, you're always going to react up, and you're always going to want more. Um, but the principle of more than enough is a proactive basis to determining um, what is enough. And and long long story short. Um, my wife and I sit down at the start of each year and we determine what our budget is and what we need to live on comfortably. Um, and then we make a basically a, a, a handshake deal and say, if, if anything else comes in, we give it away. And, um, and and that stops us constantly going, oh, well, maybe it is time for a new car and maybe we should stay another couple of days on that holiday and things like that because mm-hmm. we've already got enough. So why, why does that enough keep gravitating? So we do that personally. And then we, it was just a no-brainer to have the same logic apply to our company. Mm. And we're saying, well, the company pays us a salary, which is great, and the company pays its employees, which is great. So if the company makes a profit, we don't need any more of that money. We, mm. We've got enough. Um, so why don't we just give that away? Mm. Um, and so it was just a really natural extension of our personal ethos on giving um, and, and lifestyle, really, to um, to say, well, let's just set it up as a social enterprise. Mm. And, um, and it's been... Fantastic from a um, um, from a team culture perspective because they 
you know they know that they're not just working you know late nights to to help James get a new car. Um, they're helping um, you know get someone living in a home in in, in Nepal um, who didn't have a home 12 months ago, or helping feed some kids in in Aranui and. Um, and it's help, really helped from a client perspective because they get to you know have impact through the work that they do through us. Mm. So yeah, it's um it's just a no brainer. I, I couldn't imagine it doing any other way, really. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad that you explained it that well because it's something that I really um I you know I I really honor that because that's you make it sound like it's just natural and normal, but at the moment it's not natural and normal. You know, like sure? you know what yeah. I mean. Like most people would say wait a minute, did he just say <laughs> that they give away this? And did he just say that the profits from the company goes to charity? Yeah. So it, it at the moment, it's not a, you no. know, the mindset shift isn't there. But I think you're right to identify it. And, and unfortunately, what I've discovered in my own life, being honest here, and others I've observed, is that as your income increases your expenses increase 100%. at the exact same rate. Yeah. And it's like, actually, you know, I thought when I got to whatever X level was <laughs> that I would have like this and this, but the expenses go up too. And it's been a challenge. I remember when I was younger thinking through like, what type of car do I have? Or what, yeah. you know, what type of house do I have? And and it, there is that temptation, isn't there? Particularly if, if things are going well mm. to be like, well, yeah, we've got, this car but look at that one you know yeah, totally <laughs> and, yeah. and it's kind of a natural thing that and the new one in. comes out each year and yeah, it's got it's another right. bell and another whistle and it's yeah. that it's that reactive thing um to me you, you mm. summed it up really nicely if, if it's if it's on the fly you, you never catch up you mm. you know the, the, your expenses do increase and, and that's why we proactively put a bar in place and, and reset it each year because you know yeah. kids get more expensive and they've got greater needs but that's the time you know rob and i'll typically take a day out or, or go away and, and just really be mindful and really ponder mm. what is a fear what, what do we need realistically to live on because mm-hmm. we don't want that opportunity corrupted um we yeah. want to um keep doing as much as we can yeah well thank you for sharing that and i have a feeling some people listening right now are are wondering (laughs) maybe yeah maybe feeling challenged i know i am so that's really good i appreciate that yeah and the thing that i love about the business that you've got is that you're having impact through the profits that go to charities which is which is great but then the work that you do itself is fulfilling the mission Mm -hmm. because it's not that you're you aren't building the social housing, but you're helping this charity that's yeah. building the social housing. So it's like a dual um, impact, you know, a, yeah. a twin impact. <laughs> yeah, if we go there, um, and I think that's really important to highlight that uh, you know business isn't just about how much profit can we make from this thing. Yeah. As business owners, we probably do have choices about who it is that we service, who it is that we focus on, yeah. and what that means in terms of the impact that we can have. Yeah, we're, as a company, Jamali's just going through the, the process of becoming a B Corp. And um, and so if you don't know what that is, definitely spend a couple of minutes Googling it. But it's basically a, 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 a company for purpose um, with an with a, with a additional purpose. And um, so that process has been really great for us to actually hold both of those things in tension. Do we, do we exist to help our clients or do we do exist to make profit and give that away? And the answer is yes, uh, and and that's just been a really neat um, exercise for the team to go through 
and and then it goes deeper into who are you buying your electricity for and what are the carbon emissions from that and how do you do this and (laughs) and what's your policy around this this and this and so a a brilliant exercise to go through to really challenge anyone who's a business owner or in senior management it's a fantastic exercise even if you don't get certified to go through the process because it forces you to look at your impact across a thousand different sectors and, and areas yeah yeah, and can you get to the 80 points, which is the, <laughs> the thing to try to get to. Yeah, um, yeah I agree. I think B Corp is a great thing. And actually, it's been on the podcast a lot because it comes up as a theme, as you yeah. can imagine. Actually, episode number two, a mm. shout out to Tim Jones, because we talked about B Corp. Like, uh, this will be about episode 290-something. Yep. And so episode two was all about B Corp. Wow. <laughs> so it just shows you. Um, so yeah, Tim's been navigating the journey for us. He's been a fantastic. Oh, has he? Yeah. Great. Yeah, he's wonderful. Well, he's been on the podcast like five or six times. I'm, <laughs> I'm free. I'm having him on too much these days. <laughs> no, he's great. Um, so yeah, B Corp is definitely something to be looking into. And in the show notes, we can put links to things. So Absolutely. maybe we'll add in a link. And if people don't know about it, because, um, yeah, I mean, recently, Kiwi Bank, Kathmandu, Sinlay, those are some pretty big names yeah. that have, that have, in New Zealand context, that have come on board. And, yeah, there's dozens of others as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's great. So I, I want to kind of round out the conversation with a report that you've been working on. Sure. Um, looking at this topic of housing. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just explain what inspired you to look at that as an issue? And then um, I think by the time this comes out, it might even be available for people to kind of cook yeah. through and find. So that's the context of Correct. if people are interested, they'll be able to download it or look at it. But just explain, yeah, context. What what made you think about this issue? And then what is it that you're proposing? Great. No, um, so we do a lot of work. Um, if you look at housing as a spectrum, we do a lot of work at, at different points on the spectrum and social housing and helping those with you know really intense needs. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also do quite a bit of work around affordable housing which is sort of closer to the middle of the spectrum and anyone who's clicked up in a newspaper over the last you know three years has realized that 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 piece for first-time buyers has become incredibly hard yeah. um, over the last few years um, as house prices have increased and as lending regulations have made it a lot harder um, and so there's there's been a product that's that's pretty common overseas called build to rent so that's basically a, a developer builds a block of you know, 20 apartments or 20 townhouses, mm-hmm. and he's building them with the pool. They are building them with the purpose of renting them. Yeah, and they're long-term renters. So, you know, the average tenancy generate duration in New Zealand is 1.6 years. So, this is looking at shifting that paradigm and giving what's called security of tenure. So, people might sign a 10 or a 20-year lease, or it might be a perpetual lease that the tenant can end mm-hmm. at their leisure, but the landlord can't lease. So, and just to interject here because we are fish in the fishbowl, yeah. and so we probably, you know, you and I live here we're probably thinking well 1.6 years yeah that's that's just normal but what you're saying is that overseas actually they actually you know have much longer periods yeah yeah and 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 from a renting perspective so they've they've decoupled the place that you live from your investment whereas in New Zealand the norm is that the place that you live is your investment that you will have freehold by the time you retire and then you don't need to pay rent to yourself essentially so um it's it overseas longer term rentals are, are normal and the the downside of short rentals i mean there's there's 
tomes and tomes of literature and, and research that's been done around this. But from a social perspective, you know, if you're a renter, you're far less likely to know your neighbours. So you have less social cohesion. Right. Yep. You're less likely to put your kids into sports clubs because you might need to move to the other side of town. Um, you're less likely to um, involve yourself in community activities and you're less likely to even simple things like planting veggies um, <laughs> because, you know, you might need to move before harvest time. Mm. And, um, and so you're less likely to make your house a home because yep. you haven't got permanence. And you're probably not going to care for it to the same extent or sure. level. Is someone else's I'll be gone asset. in two months. So Why would I care what it what happens to that wall over there yeah. or whatever it is? And you don't have that sense of permanence. You get home at the end of the day, and it's a place that you'll sleep for the next few months, but you don't know whether your landlord's going to mm. offer you an extension. So, um, so build to rent is a really great solution to that um, to, to that challenge. It offers security of tenure. Um, it gives landlords more confidence that they're not going to have a week of the house being empty. So that's a week less rent. Yeah. Um, like you said, people look after their houses more, so there's likely to be lower maintenance costs. So it's a more efficient way of doing them. Mm-hmm. And likewise, it's a great way of getting scale. So you can um, um, get economies of scale with your building materials and also with finance. And that's my bent on it is how can we use finance for good right and um and if you're doing a 200 home subdivision or or development you know that might be at i don't know 20 million dollars 30 million dollars all of a sudden you've got um um you've got access to you know greater pools of capital when you scale up to 100 200 million dollars and you can start accessing different sorts of institutional capital in order to take a long-term secure um, investment in this asset class so so build to rent is fantastic from a um, security of tenure reducing some of the costs and and shifting our mindset away from um, living in our investment as it were sure but we've been looking at it, and we do a lot of work with Habitat for Humanity and their affordable home ownership programs and a lot of work with Housing Foundation. And it just sort of came to me one day going, well, what if there was sort of a, a, a model that could meet in the middle and be a pathway? So what if Build to Rent could be a pathway to getting people to own their own home? And in very, very simple terms, what if, um, if, if Steve and you were living in the house and it was a $500,000 house and it went up in 10% by 10% at the end of the year, so you pay your rent and all of that rent goes to the landlord and he makes a 9% profit, cash profit, let's say. He gets that, he pays off his debt and makes a wee profit. And then, but what happens if that house has gone from 500 to 550 and you get gifted $25,000? And again, gifted is a really weird term when you don't need to gift someone something. So it's a social good thing. And um, and saying, well, what happens if the landlord was um, philanthropically minded and wanted to see impact and wanted to see people um, accumulate wealth to, to own their own home eventually? Mm. And, um, and then each year you got gifted $25,000 worth of that home's value, or it might have been $25,000 worth of shares in the housing complex that you're in. And then the next year, you might get $30,000, but you also get a dividend on your $25,000 that might be reinvested. So over a period of time, you know, we've, we've, we've run the numbers, and by the time, if someone goes in in their mid-20s, by the time they hit 60, you know, they're going to own, um, you know, about 65% of that home. So they could cash out, someone could cash in, and they could go and buy a nice one-bedroom home to retire in, or something like that. So it's this idea that we're floating, and it's not going to appeal to everyone. The developer who wants to drive a Maserati and have the new Maserati each year is not going to be interested in this at all. But a developer who's actually saying, well, actually, I can make a fair return. I can make a cash return, but I'm just giving away some of the capital gain. That could be something that they're interested in. Mm. And impact investors might say, and just like the the World Bank invests in a a hydro project in Mozambique, 
impact investors might say, well, actually, I'll drop my cost of capital from 5% to 2.5% if it's a build-to-rent plus project because I want to use my capital for good. And all of a sudden, you start getting an impact finance lens rolling across it. So um, we've developed a, a white paper, and, and Stephen's been instrumental in, in pulling that together, and um, and we're, we're putting that out into the eth- into the ether and, and seeing what sort of response we get back. We've had a couple of developers that are down that end of the spectrum, um, keen to explore it and um, if that goes somewhere great um, if it provides an avenue for community housing providers to serve the missing middle then that's also fantastic as well yeah I think it's great because the reality is that housing in New Zealand is a big problem and I don't often talk about like trends or things on this podcast because mainly is people listening like it's about the person where they're from why do they do what they do the big why questions but housing is a it is a problem. It's going to be here for long enough where I feel confident that we can talk about it. Cool. <laughs> and and what I see is that we need solution. We need lots of solutions. Yeah. There's not going to be any one simple solution that yeah. oh there we go that solved it. Yeah. You know we need like <laughs> dozens of solutions, yeah. and we need to try different things. Yep. And it might be that this doesn't work in the form that you're talking about, but maybe it does. Sure. And. If it doesn't, maybe it gets tweaked and maybe, you know, so I just think it's really important that that these types of ideas surface, get out there mm. and that we look at them. And then if the risk appetite is there, because like you're saying, it would depend on the developer, all of those yep. things. But why not try, you know, and mm. and that's how the world changes. It's not that we keep doing yeah. what we did before, because yeah. that's what got us here. Yeah. And and so let's try something different. So in the show notes, we'll definitely by the time we put this out, we'll hopefully the paper will be out and then people can download it. And you and I have been collaborating on a little article as well mm-hmm. to summarize some of the points so we can at least put that out um, and then people can download more. And if they're interested, I presume you're happy to chat to people oh, and without a like, doubt. Yeah. you live and breathe this stuff, right? Yeah, so. no, it's definitely my passion. So if we can use, if we can use capital for good, um, you know, like you said, the, doing the status quo is, is, is not going to change anything you know it's just going to keep us here where we are and the problems that we've got so we need to do things differently yeah. and so that's what i'm passionate about is, is putting different ideas out there and if they if they hit they hit if they don't um maybe it sparks someone else to think of something different as well yeah exactly well a mutual friend another james james palmer <laughs> um who we both know well you know he had this concept a couple of years ago now mm. of something called community finance mm. which i'm involved in you're involved in and that is another you know, it's another piece of a puzzle. It's another solution. And it's aiming, you know, getting philanthropic investors and then um, providing funding for the community housing providers. And so we need that too, you know. That's different to what you just described. Um, It's trying to solve the the same wicked problem that we have. And we need to have all of these solutions trying different things and, you know, all power to those who are willing to try it, right? Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Well, James, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, I loved hearing about your six-year-old self <laughs> selling grapes <laughs> and the entrepreneurial spirit that you had that then led into, oh, it's about the money. It's about the bigger house. And the contrast, the, the, why I love long-form podcasting is I could have come in and, and said, 
I've got three minutes. Sure. Tell me about Jamelli, and you would have said something. But but now we hear the whole story, and I really appreciate your honesty in sharing it too. You know, like the whole journey of that class that you went to, mm-hmm. going over to Australia, being confronted by your friend. <laughs> you know, like coming back, getting into the development work, and then through the earthquakes. And it leads up to what you do today. And I think, you know, Simon Sinek talks about what's your why. Yeah. And that question that Rob and your wife had for you, like the sparkle's gone. Yeah. The why is what's missing. And my hope with the podcast is that every interview is like a seed. Nice. That somebody listening maybe will have heard your story and maybe something will change in their lives as well. And honestly, we may not know for decades to come, (laughs) and that's okay. But hearing your journey will help somebody out there, I'm sure, because it's really, it's a compelling story in my mind of someone who is challenging the paradigms of thinking, and in particular through your business. Like, it's just not a normal thing for a (laughs) business owner to say, we've got profits, and it's going to charity. So. Um, I really appreciate the time just to really unpack that a bit more and find out more and want to thank you for the work you're doing and for your willingness to share with us on the podcast. Fantastic. Thanks for the time, Stephen. Appreciate it. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with James. If you did, then why not check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog? And don't forget, in the show notes, there's links to his website as well as the report that we talked about. And here's an offer for you. I think I'm the only one who's listened to all 294 episodes. If there's a topic that interests you, send me a note and I'd be happy to curate a selection of other podcast interviews that you might be interested in. Until next time.